Our scripture this morning is taken from Revelation chapters 15 and 16. We're going to read chapter 15 right now, a very short chapter. We'll pick up the rest as we go through this morning. Revelation 15, starting in verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Then I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of gold in their hands, and they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations." Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. Out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. This is God's word to us as people. You may be seated. There seems to be a no end of interest in the imagery of the book of Revelation. It's quite the popular topic. It usually is, and our modern day and age is no exception. Uh, I was actually kind of wondering this week how to sort of lead into these chapters, how to begin this sermon this morning, and um, frankly, didn't really have any good ideas, so I was just going to be boring and lead into it. Some of you are going, you always are, but keep that to yourselves. Um, And uh, God delivered a sermon illustration to my mailbox. Sweet. It's awesome, literally. I get home, I can't remember what day it was, it was midweek sometime, and in our mailbox is this huge, four-page, full-color, glossy um, brochure, basically. It was an advertisement. The thing was to cost a fortune to print. And they had mass mailed them from a church that's not far from our house to everybody, at least in our neighborhood, and probably for several neighborhoods around. And it was advertising, in just about a week's time, a prophecy conference that was coming to this church and inviting all the neighbors to come hear all the secrets of the book of Revelation revealed in three days. That's sweet. What the heck is wrong with me? I've been talking about this book since October. <laughs> and I really don't want to make fun of it. I mean, I don't know what that conference is all about, and, and I, I didn't bother to research it or figure out you know, where they're coming from, if they're really off the deep end, or if it's just a really slick marketing campaign for people that are maybe really teaching some good stuff. I don't know. 
But it just struck me as so interesting that the folks putting on this conference obviously do this all over the place at churches that want to host it, and they clearly, there's enough interest that they can afford to print the kind of brochure that like would have put the typical business marketing uh, campaign that you see to shame. <laughs> this thing was absolutely impressive. There is no end of interest in this book. We want to know, what does all this crazy imagery and symbolism mean? Now, they advertised in their brochure, they promised that there would be state-of-the-art graphics when you arrived at their seminar. That's all I got. Sorry. That's the best I can do. I kind of like that, actually. Anyway, it says it all. Thank you, Jack. I appreciate that. All right. Today we're in chapter 15 and 16 of Revelation. We're getting much more of this symbolism, and it comes really rapid fire. Chapter 15, we just read, the shortest chapter in the whole book, only eight verses long. It sets up chapter 16. Chapter 16 is the uh, final series of seven actions, as it were, in the book. The final series of seven. There are four series of seven in the book of Revelation. Uh, The book opens up with letters to seven churches, which are clearly sent to more than seven churches, but those seven are named. And then the main feature of the book is that there are these three different series of seven judgments that God sends on the earth to unrepentant sinners, and they are listed in three groups of seven. We saw the first group, Clear back toward the beginning of the book where uh, the seven seals of the scroll that John saw in heaven were broken. The Apostle John is writing this and and with each seal broken there was a judgment from God and then uh, much more recently we saw seven judgments from God that were announced each one by a successive trumpet blast. So a trumpet sounds and then a judgment comes and now we are in the last of these uh, series of seven, these three series of seven judgments. Uh, seven bowls of God's wrath. And, you know, the imagery is so wild. We've talked about why God would write a book like this in the Bible. Uh, Not only was this kind of uh, genre really more popular in the first century when it was written than it is today. Actually, that's an understatement. It doesn't even exist in the world today. Uh, Nobody writes like this anywhere anymore. But back then, they actually kind of wrote this way much more regularly, so it was a little bit more familiar with all the symbolic imagery. Um, But nonetheless, the purpose of it is really to not only inform the mind, although it does, the book of Revelation is trying to teach us things, but the real purpose of it is to engage the imagination And that's what the images do. And I think that's evidence of the popularity of the book. People read that and they go, my goodness, what's going on here? And what does this mean? And we want to know. Well, we're going to do our best to work through this this morning and kind of find out what God is trying to get at for us as modern day Christians in this chapter of seven bowls of his wrath being poured out. Now, because the seven uh, bowl judgments, as we often call them for shorthand, are very similar to the last seven that we just saw, the seven trumpet judgments, as it were, um, they're, they're actually remarkably similar. They're almost the same, um, with one big difference. The, the seven bowl judgments kind of repeat the same thing that the trumpet judgments said, but they make it bigger and wider and badder, okay? So there's this kind of intensification that happens. We'll see that in a second. Now, because of that, though, um, the content is really similar, and so I don't want to just re-preach this morning the sermon we preached a few weeks ago when we went through the seven trumpets, although I know it was riveting, and you guys couldn't get enough of it, and I'm sure you wouldn't mind, but 
Thank you for not laughing out loud uproariously at that. No, we're not going to just repeat what we said a couple of weeks ago. Instead, this morning, we've, we've gone far enough in the book of Revelation that we've got an opportunity to hit this from a little bit of a different angle. We're going to pull back a little bit this morning and take a bit of a higher level view. And we're still going to walk through the passage and take our cues from it as we do every Sunday. But our focus is going to be a little different in that we're going to look at how this passage connects with previous things in the book of Revelation and especially how it connects with a ton of really important things in the Old Testament because when you see that, you get a sense of what I think the book of Revelation is trying to do, what it's trying to say. And that's going to be our goal. I've, I've got great news. With all of the, the ground we're going to cover this morning, our sermon has one point, okay? <laughs> so you can, and I'm going to like give it to you right up front so you can totally tune out and you'll still get the point of the sermon. How is that for a full service operation? Here's the point of what I think is being driven at. I mean, there's a lot that can be taken away from this chapter, but here's, I think, the main point of where we're at. In these chapters, the book of Revelation is trying to point out that the experience of Christians in the world today is a true and greater exodus experience. That's really the point of everything we're going to say this morning. The experience of Christians in the world today is a true and greater exodus experience. Now, by exodus experience, those of you familiar with the Old Testament know what I'm talking about. Uh, The ancient Israelites were slaves in Egypt. God sends the ten plagues through Moses Um, and and eventually uh, causes the Pharaoh to let his people go, but then they get out to the Red Sea. Pharaoh says, I changed my mind, I want you back. He comes after him with his army. God supernaturally parts the waters of the Red Sea. The Israelites go through it. The Egyptians go into it and are swallowed up in the Red Sea and die. God conquers an army for his people that they could not conquer, and they are now free. That's the Exodus experience, and they head off in the wilderness to meet with God. The point of the passage this morning is to say that all of that stuff in the Old Testament is pointing ahead to our experience today. So we're going to do two things this morning. First of all, I want to justify what I just said up there. (laughs) So we'll spend the first part of the sermon making several observations about how this passage ties us back to the Exodus, but is talking about a greater universal Exodus experience. And then secondly, we're going to end by talking about what does it matter? What, what, what impact, what difference does that make for us today? And I'll suggest at least three things. There's probably more than that, but we'll only have time for three. So with that in mind, let's dive in. Uh, first of all, how does this passage sort of lead us back to the Exodus and tell us that our experience is a true and greater Exodus experience? I want to begin with the passage we just read, chapter 15, verses especially 2 through 4. Uh, chapter 15, as short as it is, um, is really designed to uh, introduce this final series of seven judgments that, that John sees in these visions, these bowl judgments. But it introduces them in a very interesting way. Verse 1 just starts to describe the events, right? John is seeing visions from God. He sees these seven angels coming out and getting ready to, to, to get to business, get to work, uh, executing God's judgments on the earth. But then in verse 2, with no um, kind of warning at all, that scene is interrupted, and we get for three verses a picture of God's people in heaven. So this is like after all the judgments are done. This is not just arranged in a neat chronological way. This is God's people in heaven praising God for having conquered and defeated the beast. We saw who that was last uh, Last Sunday and the Sunday before that, this is uh, Satan and the forces that he works through in this world. 
that oppose the gospel and Christians. God defeats them, and they are, after the fact, celebrating in heaven God's victory. Well, the victory hasn't completely happened yet. We're about to have it narrated what some of these judgments are going to be, right? But here, it introduces the judgments by giving us a picture of God's people celebrating the judgments before they've even happened. Now, it's a very strange thing. It seems out of place. He just drops it in there. You get three verses of this vision of God's people in heaven, and then he goes back to resuming the narrative of how this vision unfolded of these seven judgments. What's going on here? Well, notice a couple of things. There's a couple of really prominent clues as to what's going on here right in the text itself. If you're in Revelation chapter 15, in verse 3, um, he says these uh, Christians, these saints, these redeemed people, sang the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the Lamb. Now, we'll come back to that second part a little bit later, okay? Right now, I just want to focus on singing the song of Moses, the servant of the Lamb. What is the song of Moses? Well, anyone familiar with the Old Testament would know that, that um, the Old Testament records two lengthy songs of Moses, actually three if you include Psalm 90. Uh, but in the context of the imagery of this passage, this is certainly pointing back to Moses' first song, which is recorded in the Old Testament book of Exodus chapter 15. And it was a song of praise that Moses sang right after the Israelites went through the Red Sea and the Egyptians tried but failed. In other words, here was the people of God and they are in Egypt, and God breaks them out of Egypt. They weren't strong enough to do that themselves. He sends these supernatural plagues, and he you know, defeats this powerful king by means of those plagues, and he finally lets them go, and then he changes his mind, and now they're pinned with the sea on one hand and this powerful army on the other, and they're basically peasants. They're not really ready to go fight an army, so they're basically dead meat, and then God supernaturally opens up a way through the sea. They go through it, and Pharaoh's army goes in, and God defeats them. God judges and defeats the people who are attacking his people. And then on the banks of the Red Sea, Moses sings a song of praise to God for his deliverance, and that's recorded in Exodus chapter 15. So in other words, in Exodus 15, Moses is a song of Moses praising God for defeating the Pharaoh and his army. Revelation 15 is a song of Christians in heaven praising God for defeating the beast and his followers. Do you see the parallels? This is a Moses-like song that they are singing. Also, notice back up in verse 2, the people of God stand beside what is called a, a fiery sea, something like a sea, John's trying to describe in the vision that he saw, mixed with fire, which is weird in that, at least insofar as water is not normally something that burns. <laughs> So John is seeing this, this image of a sea, perhaps the same one he saw clear back in chapter 4, but now it's, it's sort of infused with fire in it. And so fire throughout the book of Revelation has always been a symbol pretty consistently of God's judgment on unrepentant sinners. We've seen that over and over and over again already. Again, lots of symbolic imagery, but most of it's pretty easy to figure out. There's some challenging symbols in Revelation, but most of it's pretty easy to understand. Fire is almost always... Uh, a picture of God's judgment on unrepentant people. So here's this sea that the people of God are standing next to that is red with God's judgment. And it is fiery red, almost like kind of a red sea. You get the idea? They're standing next to a fiery red sea of God's judgment, praising God for judging evildoers. 
just like Moses and the people stood next to the literal Red Sea, praising God for his judgment on those who were persecuting them. The parallels are unmistakable. This is a Red Sea moment. Now, there's one other set of observations to make that tie this whole uh, section in to um, the Exodus. I'm going to briefly allude to, oh, I got behind. There we go. There's our second point. They sing it next to the fiery sea. I'm going to allude briefly to the bold judgments in chapter 16. I'm going to rifle through them real quick here because we're going to go back to them in just a second a little bit more carefully. But I just want to point out that there are some remarkable parallels between the nature of these judgments John, the apostle John, is describing in his vision and parallels with the ancient Israelites' experience with the Pharaoh and the ten plagues of Egypt that ultimately sprung them free. First of all, again, we'll look more closely at the bowls in just a second, but the first uh, bowl is poured out and these boils or these sores break out on people. That's one of God's judgments. Well, that's exactly what happened in the sixth of plague of Moses' ten plagues. It was a plague of boils or sores. Okay? Uh, the second and the third bowls uh, are poured out on the earth in John's vision, <clears throat> and he says in consequence of that, there is water, uh, the ocean in one case, and freshwater rivers and lakes in the other case, uh, that turns to blood, which immediately takes us. There's only one other place in the Bible where water has turned to blood outside the book of Revelation that I can think of, and that's clearly in uh, the very first plague that God instituted where the, uh, through Moses where the waters of the Nile turned to blood. The uh, fourth bowl is one in which people are scorched with intense heat from the sun, which is very similar to the seventh Egyptian plague. Now, this one's a little interesting. It doesn't sound like it first because the seventh plague, if you're familiar with the book of Exodus, was a plague of hail. You say, wait a minute, hail is ice. <laughs> so ice and sun scorching don't seem like they're the same thing. Except when you go back and you read in the book of Exodus the description of the seventh plague, it says that there was a great hailstorm which was devastating for crops. It still is today. It definitely was back in that day. Uh, so that was a, a natural catastrophe for sure, but it also says that there was fire mixed with the hail that was scorching the earth. And so in both cases, you've got this intense heat or fire coming down from the sky and causing distract, uh, destruction. These aren't exact word-for-word -word copies, but the, the linkages, the symbolism, and the imagery is so similar, it's unmistakable. Uh, the fifth bowl um, is almost exactly what happened. It just says, darkness fell over the earth. That was essentially the ninth uh, of Moses' ten plagues in the book of Exodus, darkness over the entire earth for a period of time. And the sixth bowl is really interesting. Um, it's all about frogs. And we'll say a little bit more about that in just a second. But let me just summarize it by saying that in the sixth bowl, uh, judgment, this bowl is poured out. We'll read it here in a minute. Um, and these three demonic spirits that John says look like frogs, which is a weird statement at first, go out into all the earth and they begin to gather the armies of, of the unrepentant to fight against God. So you got this image of frogs going out into all the earth. And what was the second plague of Moses? The plague of frogs covering the entire earth. You see, every Bible scholar that's ever written anything about the book of Revelation, no matter what, how they interpret it, they all recognize this linkage. It's so obvious you can't miss it. The Bible is intentionally trying to take its readers back to the time of the exodus and saying that what God is doing here is like another exodus punishment. Our journey is like an exodus journey. 
So those are the major big ways that this passage is trying to tie us back in. There's a few other details, but I want to move on to one other set of observations. And this is where we're going to really get into chapter 16 a little bit. It's not just the Exodus. It's a bigger, more universal, and ultimate Exodus. And in this passage, you also see this kind of sense of escalation built into it, especially in the way that these bold judgments relate to the previous judgments that we have seen. So I want to take just a minute and walk through this. We're going to read what these judgments are, and we're just going to compare them uh, to the previous judgments that we saw, that series of trumpet judgments. And there is a remarkable similarity in all except the first one. Uh, The first one in each case, the first trumpet, the first bowl, really don't have a whole lot to do with one another. So again, this is not just kind of a, it's not, you know, John doesn't write in computer code. It's not this perfect system. But he's constantly building on and pulling imagery from what has happened previously, either clear back to the Old Testament or even earlier in the book of Revelation. If you're in Revelation chapter 16, I begin with verse um, 3, the second bowl. The second angel poured out his bowl uh, into the sea, And it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. So in John's vision, he sees this angel pouring out a bowl that we were already told is full of God's wrath. That's his righteous judgment against unrepentant sin. So God is punishing evil. He's bringing about justice. That's the idea here. And in consequence of pouring out this bowl of God's wrath, the entire ocean of the all over the world is turned to blood, and everything in it dies. Now, if you remember back when we were looking at the trumpet judgments, the first trumpet blew and God's judgment came down and it said a third of the ocean in John's vision was turned to blood. Here you have the entire ocean turned to blood. Kind of the same thing, but a much more universal worldwide scale, you see? Same thing happens in the next one. Read down to verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And we'll look at verses 5 through 7 a little bit later in the angelic announcement there. This third angel pours out his bowl, and all of the fresh water, now not the ocean, now all the fresh water also turns to blood. Well, if you recall, the third trumpet blew, and a third of the fresh water turned to blood. Same exact pattern here. Same thing's going on, but what was once partial is now Worldwide, there's this sense of escalation. The fourth, skip down to verse 8, chapter 16. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched with fierce heat, and they cursed the name of the God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory, just like the Egyptians in the Old Testament had not repented and did not give God glory. And he sent plagues on them. In this fourth um, bowl, uh, sorry, the fourth trumpet judgment that we had seen uh, a few chapters ago, the sun was darkened. It said a, a third of the sun no longer shined. So there was this dimming of the sun. Now you've got, again, a plague of God on the sun, but it's intensified. It, not only, it doesn't become less intense, it actually becomes more intense than normal to the point where it is said to be scorching. The fifth trumpet, or sorry, bowl. The fifth angel, verse 10, poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, 
and its kingdom was plunged into darkness, and people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. Still, they did not repent of their deeds. Uh, the fifth and sixth trumpets, you recall, were quite extensive. They took up almost, the, well, they did take up the entirety of Revelation chapter 10. And there was a lot of detail given. These, in contrast, are very, very short. But there's still a remarkable similarity. When the fifth trumpet blew, you may recall, um, an angelic being was seen to open up a bottomless pit and smoke came out and this demonic horde came out that looked like uh, locusts with scorpion tails and I put some really cool pictures up on the screen and we kind of had a rocking good time that Sunday trying to imagine what this was all about. And these demonic scorpions, the plague was that they were stinging people but the Bible explicitly says the sting didn't kill anybody. People actually were in so much agony from what was being done to them, they wanted to die, but they couldn't die. And so you've got this picture of, of a, a demonic captain of the horde sending out this demonic horde and harming people, but not killing them. That was the uh, fifth trumpet. And in this fifth bowl, we have a picture of not just a demonic horde, but the very throne of the beast himself the very center of satanic power in the universe. It's bigger than just a demon. And once again, we have people who are crying out in anguish because of their sores and refusing to repent. The language is so similar to that, what, what happened in the fifth trumpet, but now it's even bigger. It's escalated. Not just a demonic army, but the throne of the beast himself. Lastly, the sixth trumpet, uh, sorry, sixth bowl, uh, verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Now here's where it gets interesting. I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go uh, abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. We'll pause there. So now here's this picture of the great river Euphrates dried up to make way for all of the world's armies to come through and fight the people of God, fight God, basically. And the world's armies are summoned by the three baddies that we already saw in chapters 12 and 13. The dragon, who we saw was Satan, clearly identified in the text, and then these two beasts, this beast and then this second beast who is now called the false prophet whom we looked at extensively in chapter 13. All three of them are complicit in sending out these demonic spirits that look like frogs throughout the whole earth to essentially go gather up all the armies to come across the river Euphrates and fight God and his people. That's what John saw in his vision. And if you recall uh, the uh, sixth trumpet, when it blew, there was a large army. John said in his vision, it was like a swarm of locusts with just too many to count that came over the hills from the river Euphrates, interestingly enough, and was just laying waste to everything in its path. So there you had this huge horde that came from the river Euphrates and destroyed a lot of stuff. Here in Revelation 15, or 16 rather, we have all the armies of the world coming from the river Euphrates and getting ready to try to lay waste to everything, to God himself. Of course, they won't be successful. Do you see the parallels? 
And lastly, just for fun, in comparing the last two, each one of the final judgments in these series, we've mentioned this before, pictures the final judgment at the end of the age. The seventh seal is the final judgment, the seventh trumpet blast is the final judgment, the seventh bowl is the final judgment, and they all use very similar sounding language. When the seventh trumpet sounded, there was an earthquake, there was hail, there was this declaration of finality, the kingdom of, our, of this world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And here at the end of chapter 16, we get much the same thing. Pick it up in verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the, hev- uh, the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Got that declaration of finality again that we've seen several times already throughout the book. And there were flashes of lightnings, rumbles, uh, and peals of thunder, a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. And on it goes. What's the point of all this? Let's pull this back now. I wanted to point out those parallels because they're, they're really remarkable, and I don't think they're accidental. They just can't be. This is part of what readers of Revelation are supposed to understand, and sometimes when we look so closely at each individual symbol, we start to miss the forest for the trees. And since we've looked at a lot of the individual forest uh, trees earlier, I wanted to pull back and see the forest and see how these things connect. The question is, what do we do with that? What does it mean? Well, there's this clear sense that as the book progresses, things are escalating. Things are becoming more um, widespread. In fact, they're becoming worldwide. What was once local is now worldwide. What was once bad is getting ultimate. Everything is escalating. Now, for the last 15 minutes, I've walked you rapid fire through a lot of little observations in Revelation, and you've been very patient. Let's stop that rapid-fire approach and see if we can pull all this together and then figure out what we're supposed to take away from this as readers today. We've got these two observations. On the one hand, we are, uh, th- these chapters are connecting the experience of the church today with the ancient Exodus experience of the ancient Israelites. On the other hand, there's this clear sense of escalation, of going global. And when you put those two together, I think the ultimate thrust of the Bible at this point is very clear, and that's where we started today. Christians today are in a worldwide ultimate exodus experience. The original Red Sea experience of the Israelites actually exists in the Bible for the main purpose of pointing ahead to our ultimate experience today. Theirs was a small experience, one group of people in one place in time at one moment, but it was sort of a foreshadowing of the experience of all of God's people that will ultimately culminate in the final judgment when Jesus comes back and repentance is no longer an option and he brings his people home to eternity and finally judges all those who refuse to repent of their evil. We are awaiting that day now, and in the meantime, we are in that sort of an exodus experience, but it is, it's bigger than theirs was. Theirs was just a scale model. It was pointing ahead. This is the real, global, worldwide exodus. It's the true and greater Red Sea experience, which the original Red Sea experience of the Israelites points to in sort of a typological way. It foreshadows it for us. What are we supposed to take away from this? Even if you were to say, okay, fine, I I got that, I see the connections, interesting, maybe I knew some of that, maybe I didn't, but okay. So we're in a greater exodus. What does that mean? Well, that's really the important question, isn't it? 
We've got to understand what the Bible is saying first, but to understand what its implications are, that's where our lives start to change. Let me suggest at least three things uh, that are coming right out of this chapter that are takeaways for us. First of all, for Christians to just use the language of the passage here would be the exhortation to stay awake. To stay awake. We find that language where we left off in verse 15 of chapter 16. By the way, this is another interesting point where right in the middle, or actually toward the end of of narrating the events that took place in John's vision as he was seeing the sixth bowl poured out, just before he finishes, there's this statement from Jesus that's just inserted right into the text. It's, It's a total, like no introduction, it's just dropped right in there. And it's kind of jarring. You're like, where did that come from? And I think that's on purpose. That's to catch our attention. And in that statement, Jesus says this, Revelation 16, verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on so that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. This clearly tells us how to interpret the implications of the visions here. Jesus flat out says, here's what you're supposed to do with this. Here's the message to take away, stay awake. Now, the imagery of, of the clothes on and all that kind of stuff is this idea that, you know, at nighttime, if somebody's going to come rob your house, uh, they don't announce themselves. You don't know they're coming. And so if you're going to be alert, you know, you're going to stay awake. That's the idea. And then the image sort of shifts a little bit. I mean, it's almost like if somebody's going to invade your town, like a foreign army or something, and you might have to get out of town because they're going to attack in the middle of the night, you've got to run for your life. Well, if you take off all your normal clothes and you just go to bed, you're going to wake up in the middle of the night as the swords and the shields are clashing around you, and you're going to dive out your window and run for the hills. You don't even have time to grab your clothes, much less anything. You're not going to have time once the attack starts. You've got to get out of Dodge to save your life. So he says, if you know an attack like that is coming, you're just not sure when, but you know it's coming, then you stay awake or you sleep lightly and sleep with your clothes on, right? (laughs) It changes your mindset. Do you see the idea? You're you're ready to go at a moment's notice. You're not going to get too complacent. You're not just going to throw on the jammies and go to bed like nothing's wrong because you know an invasion is coming. Jesus himself tells us that's one, one of the things we're supposed to take away from this passage. The final judgments that are being described here, the context of the sixth bowl is preparing the way for the final judgment as the armies of the earth are gathered for this final battle that John sees in his visions. All a picture of God instituting his final judgment on unbelievers that then takes place in the seventh bowl. And it's in that context our Lord tells us, stay awake. Don't get caught giving in to worldly pressure or being led astray by deceptive teachings, those two beasts again, the one who tries to intimidate and force you into, in, uh, into conformity and the other who tries to deceive you and manipulate you into conformity. He says, be alert. Don't give in to either one of those because God's fina- uh, the finality of God's judgment is coming. You don't know when, but you know it's coming. Meaning what? Well, probably meaning a lot of things. And if I had more time, I'd go through five or six things I thought this meant. And we just don't have that kind of time this morning. But you do have that kind of time in your community life groups this week. And so I want to encourage you to talk about this. What does it mean to stay awake? Let me just offer one suggestion. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says to Christians, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
Don't be conformed to this world. Don't let your pattern of thinking follow the pattern of thinking of your dominant culture. That's the idea. Because every culture kind of has a, a, a major kind of overall way of thinking. And they're all different from one another. So if Christians all over the world are just following the thought patterns of their dominant cultures, then Christians, the right and left, are going to be thinking differently from one another, when in reality, God calls us as best we can to follow the thought patterns he's given us here in the Bible. And the Bible is going to contradict the thoughts of every culture at some point. And it's at those points we need to be the most alert and the most awake to not be intimidated by those who would uh, seek to badger you into submission to the culture's way of thinking or seduced by false teachings. Uh, just last Sunday, for those of you that were here, um, we talked about the Bible's teaching on an enormously unpopular idea in our modern American context. And to call it enormously unpopular is probably an understatement. It is the Bible's teachings on the existence of an eternal hell. We talked about that fairly extensively last week at the end of chapter 14. Now, because there is so much revulsion in our society against that idea, and we talked about why last week, we'll go back through all that now, but because there's so much revulsion against that, it can become hard to be like in a group of, of people that, that you like and, and, and you want to be considered a part of, and like none of them think that, that if God is there, he would ever allow the, there to be a hell, and you're like the one person who's like, uh, yeah, I believe in hell. If it ever comes up in conversation, you're like, awkward. In fact, it, if it's only awkward, you're getting off pretty easy. It may be actually hostile, right? <laughs> now, there's good ways to respond to that and bad ways to respond to it if it does come up. We don't have time to go into all that this morning. But to simply hold to the teachings of Scripture where they are clear and where they contradict our culture. You see, if I remember that this world is not my home, if I remember that I'm on a, an exodus journey here, I'm wandering through the wilderness and my deliverer is taking me home and this is not it. If I really believe that, it begins to change the way I respond to pressure from my culture. It changes my mindset. I don't need to be in love with this world, so I don't need this world to love me back. I'm not going to be belligerent, I'm not going to be a jerk, but I'm not going to cave on what Christ has taught because my culture disagrees or doesn't like it. You see, that's one example of staying awake. Many others I want to encourage you to talk about. For the sake of time, we'll move on. Stay awake is one takeaway from this. The second is the observation that vengeance is God's. Vengeance is God's, which means it's not ours. I'm going to back up in chapter 16 to that angelic announcement after the third angel poured out his bowl that I skipped a moment ago because I wanted to come back to it now. After he pours out the second and third bowls where the water becomes blood, I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, speaking to God, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. They have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and so you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard uh, the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. We've seen this over and over through the book of Revelation. The Bible pictures God's judgments against unrepentant sinners not as being vindictive, but as being just and right. These people killed Christians 
And so they shed their blood. They are being given blood to drink. There's sort of a, like, there's an appropriateness to it. It's, it's almost a poetic justice in that sense. And notice that in the vision of heaven we talked about at the beginning of our message, next to the fiery Red Sea, the Christians there are praising God for his victory over evil. It's a victory he has won. We already saw back in chapter 12 that the Christians in Revelation overcome Satan by the blood of Jesus, by the word of their testimony, and by being willing to let their lives go if necessary for the sake of the cross. In other words, we rely on what Jesus did, we confess what Jesus did, and we bank everything on what Jesus did even if it cost me my life. Which is kind of a weird way to have victory, isn't it? You defeat the big beast not by sticking a sword in its side and slaying it. That's God's job, not mine. I defeat the beast by being trampled by it if necessary. All the while praising Jesus and saying he's more valuable than life itself. There's nothing you can take from me that is better than what I have in him. I'm relying on him for my salvation. That's how we conquer. So the point is that that the victory is Christ's, not ours. Christians don't conquer by changing the world through arguments or through political action or through force. There's no Christian holy war that you find us called to in the pages of the Bible. Now, a word of balance. There is certainly a place to stand up for what's right in society. We should. We are called to. There is a place to argue for the truth and to advocate for good over evil, and particularly in a participative society like ours, to even advocate for things like laws and and, and candidates that we think are good. I mean, all of that's good. We're citizens of this country. We vote. We should be doing those things. We are thinkers. We have brains. We should be engaging in discussions with friends with whom we disagree. There's a place for all of that. We're not suggesting that, that a Christian's role is to sit back and do nothing and just wait for God to fix everything. But there's a key to understanding this in scripture every time a christian advocates for good over evil it's not because we think we can actually make the world a perfectly good place that won't happen until jesus comes and cleans up human hearts it's because in advocating for good we are calling people to repentance we're saying this is the evil that is in our hearts. It's right there in our society. And we need to repent of this. And when Jesus says repent and you don't think you have any sin, with all due respect, I beg to differ. Do you see what's going on here? We all have something to repent of. We are trying to shine the light on the gospel and on Christ himself. I've got up on the screen John chapter 18, verse 36. That's where Jesus is standing after he's been beaten and falsely accused before the Roman governor, Pilate. The strong arm of the Roman Empire, which is in charge of the world at this point, here's the man. And Jesus is being accused of undermining the Caesar's authority and trying to set up his own political kingdom. He's being accused of trying to overthrow the government. Pilate asks him point blank, essentially, are you, paraphrase here, are you trying to overthrow the government? Are you a king? Are are you trying to subvert Caesar's rule? Because if so, i got to kill you. And Jesus' response in John chapter 18, verse 36, is simply this. My king, yeah, I'm a king. (laughs) But my kingdom is not of this world. 
He says, otherwise, my servants would be out in the streets fighting. There is a mob out there, Pilate, but they're not my followers. It's not my guys who have got the torches and the swords trying to take over and kill all the Romans and throw you guys out. Oh yeah, I got a kingdom, but it's not of this world. And he's giving us an important lesson there. There is no Christian holy war to take the world by force and make it righteous in the Bible. So even as we stand up and advocate and argue for what's right, which we should, we must. We do it to call attention to the gospel and to call people to repentance. We recognize that Jesus will come clean up sin someday. That much is indisputable in Revelation. It's his war, not ours. And that leads me to our final point this morning. Life and joy are found in Jesus' victory. Life and joy are not found in getting married to the right person. They're not found in getting the right job. They're not found in having my party win the political debates or in winning the lottery or in having a wonderful family over for Christmas. We may consider any one of those things to be good, and many of them are, but life is found in Jesus' victory. I was going to finish back where we started in chapter 15, verses 2 through 4, when we saw that the Christians in John's vision of heaven were singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And I skipped that part about the Lamb because I wanted to come back to it here at the end. The lamb in Revelation is Jesus Christ. We saw that very clearly in chapter 4. Pictured as a lamb who is sacrificed because he was sacrificed for us on the cross. That's why he's pictured that way in Revelation. In other words, they aren't just singing the same song that Moses sang. In fact, if you go back to Exodus 15 and read the words of Moses' song, they have no similarity at all to the words of the song here in verses 3 and 4. They're singing a Moses-like song. We've already talked about that. But it's not a song about Moses, and it's not a song about the Egyptians or the Pharaoh or the ancient Israelites. It's a Moses-like song in their Red Sea experience in which they are praising Jesus Christ for what he has done at great cost to himself to overcome sin and to conquer death. Jesus is the true and greater Moses. That's the point. He is the one who comes, sent from God, to lead his people through the impossible, our conquering of sin and our journey through a world that hates the gospel we love. And he is the one who delivers his people safely to the promised land, which is eternity with God in heaven. That whole scene that acted out in history and that is recorded in the pages of the Old Testament, the Bible is saying that is just a scale model of everything God is doing. We are on the real Exodus experience and Jesus is our real Moses. He's the true and greater Moses. He is the Savior who rescues his people. Satan and his beasts are defeated. Evil is conquered in the book of Revelation and ultimate life and joy are experienced by God's people forever. And all of this happens for one reason and one reason only. Because Jesus died on the cross in our place. And in the final analysis, friends, that's what the book of Revelation is pointing us to. 
It is not pointing you to 12 secret keys that will unlock God's plan for your life. It's pointing you to the one key that has unlocked God's plan for everybody's life, and that is when he sent his son to live among us, die for us, and rise from the dead so that he could do what he's doing for you and I right now today. He could beckon us home and say, you could not overcome your sin. I have overcome your sin for you. Great cost to myself. So come now in grace. Embrace me for who I am, the king of the universe, your king. Bow your knee to me. Embrace the sac- my sacrifice for you on the cross and find life because all the evil in the world is going down one day. I will see to that. But you now have the opportunity to come home. That's the opportunity he's extending to every one of us. I'd like to ask you to bow your heads in prayer for a moment while the worship team comes back up. And while you do, I want to encourage you just to take a moment before the music starts and before we begin to sing to reflect on the nature of your own relationship with Jesus Christ, if you have one. Jesus is beckoning each one of us to enter into a relationship with him whereby we submit to him as our king and by so doing we find that we also relate to him as our brother and he relates us to God as our father. That's your call. That's his call to each one of us. Father, I want to praise you for your word. I want to praise you for every man and woman and young person seated in this room. And I pray, Jesus, that you would reveal yourself to us so much more clearly for how awesome you are, the great lion you were called in chapter four, who defeats all the enemies and defeats evil, but also the sacrificial lamb who was slain in our place. You are both, and that boggles my mind. And God, I pray that as our minds are boggled, our emotions and our imaginations would be engaged and that you would receive the worship of a grateful people now. And we pray this in your son's name and for his glory. Amen.